0: Hey y'all, it's Arima. So, I'm actually going to hand off this week's show to someone else on the team. For months, Serena Chow has been working on a story about a family secret. When she first told us this story, we all found it incredibly remarkable. It's about a secret her dad discovered that would not only redefine his childhood, but his entire family. Here's Serena
1: Growing up, my dad, Matthew, was never that close to his father. His parents divorced when he was five. And after that, my grandpa became this sort of elusive figure in my dad's life. But there was one thing my dad could count on, like clockwork. Every year without fail, my grandpa Silas always sent him a birthday card. That is until my dad's 40th birthday. That year, no card came. Not on the day, or the next week, or the week after.
2: So when it went about almost two weeks that I hadn't heard from him. And after many repeated calls to his home, I got concerned.
1: Silas lived alone. So my dad called the property managers for his father's apartment complex and asked them to check on him. A couple hours later, they called back.
2: They said, we found him at his desk. My dad had passed away. He had some heart issues, and so he must have had a heart attack. I felt really bad. I felt bad that there was no one there by his side. He died alone.
1: Our whole family, including my grandma, drove down to Maryland where Silas had lived alone. I was just four years old. That day, my dad and his brother Mark, my uncle, started sorting through their father's life, a life they had barely known. When my grandparents divorced, my grandma basically took the kids and left while Silas was still at work. My dad never got to say goodbye. And even though as adults they'd gotten closer, my dad was never completely sure what family meant to his father. They rarely had big, personal conversations, especially not about things like my grandpa's estate. So that day, while cleaning out his apartment, my dad was looking for clues, something that would point him in the direction of my grandpa's final wishes.
2: So your Uncle Mark and his family were there. Uh, You and your cousins were playing in another room. I happened to be going through some stuff in, in one of the bedrooms, and in this closet there was a shelf with a brown briefcase, and uh so that's strange.
1: Inside were a trove of legal documents that my dad started to flip through.
2: When I read it more carefully, I said, Oh, this is the will.
1: Reading his father's will, the first page was dedicated to Silas's lifelong devotion to his Christian faith. And as my dad scanned down further, he got to the part of the will that detailed his father's estate and what he wanted done with it. The estate was worth nearly $500,000, and his father had designated four inheritors to receive equal shares, likely the four people he cared most about in the world. So, Dad, what was, like, the list of inheritors in the will?
2: So it was Silas's church, Mark, me, and Joseph. Then I thought, well, who is this
1: Joseph? The church made sense. Himself and his brother Mark. That made sense. But Joseph? Who was Joseph? By the time my grandpa died, he and my dad had actually grown pretty close. So my dad felt like he would have known if someone was important enough to his father to inherit a quarter of the estate. But there were no clues in the will about who this Joseph was and who Joseph was to my grandpa. Tucked into my grandpa's will, was this secret that he kept for decades. And wills, sure, they're a legal document, usually a financial one, but also, embedded in the dollars and cents they divvy out, you can see a kind of map of that person's priorities, their deepest desires, and sometimes their deepest secrets. A kind of P.S. to their lives, leaving it to their loved ones to discover and wrestle with once they're gone. The family story my dad knew before finding the will went something like this. My grandpa Silas immigrated from China in the 1950s to LA, where he was training to be a doctor. He met my grandma at a hospital near UCLA, where she was working as a transcriptionist. The relationship began quickly and ended quickly. They married within a year of meeting and divorced when my dad was just five years old. After that, nearly all traces of his father Silas disappeared. My grandpa would visit every few years, and there were occasional letters, brief calls, and those birthday cards. But for the most part, my dad grew up without a father, and also without half of his identity.
2: My dad wasn't there to really be a role model, a father figure, and give us a sense of what it meant to be Chinese.
1: His mother had blonde hair and blue eyes. He and his brother had copper hair and distinct Asian features.
2: There were no other kids that looked like us. There was none of that.
1: They stood out at their predominantly white school during a time of their life when they just wanted to fly under the radar.
2: Some people, I'd I'd eat lunch with them and they would do things to their eyes and and do it in front of me, pulling their eyes in a narrow position.
1: My dad says this mockery, it just kept happening.
2: It really made me feel like, like I wasn't one of them.
1: My grandma would do things to try to make it easier on her kids, like having them switch their Chinese surname to her last name, and even brainstorming fake answers to give when people would ask, what are you?
2: You know, I would say that, no, I wasn't Chinese. You've got that wrong. You know, I'm part Russian or Hawaiian. You know, those were all ways that she used to protect us.
1: So your Asian identity it was, like, treated like something you should hide to protect yourself.
2: I think my mom genuinely was trying her best to help us. But I think, for me, my Asian heritage was such a negative thing in my life at that point in time that I didn't want to, to deal with that.
1: For most of my dad's childhood, his grandma, his mom's mom, lived with them. And she had always disapproved of the marriage, She didn't like that her white daughter had married a Chinese man and had mixed-race children. So my dad really only had one other person who could relate to him growing up, his brother, Mark.
2: We were really close. People would always think that we were like twins growing up. If he ever had a problem with racism, he wasn't afraid to really get into an altercation if it meant it.
1: Together, the two brothers did their best to hide their mixed identity. And when necessary, they'd stand up for each other when someone bullied them for it. As they got old enough to travel alone, their mom started sending them to Maryland on school breaks to see their dad whenever they could. But even there, with their father, their only connection to their Chinese identity, there was a disconnect. Silas never really spoke with them about the challenges of leaving China and settling in America. And even when they were with him, he kept them at a distance, almost like they were a secret he didn't want to tell. The more they visited, my dad and his brother began to notice that their father only ever took them to restaurants or tourist attractions that were pretty far from where he lived, and he never took them to his church.
2: He would say, well, son, that's because, you know, um, your mom and I got a divorce, and so for me, that's something I can't let other people know because ultimately, I I feel that I need to be... a very good role model or Christian mentor to people.
1: How did it make you feel when he would say those things?
2: I'm thinking, okay, maybe is it more important than your, than your sons? You know, it, it seems like that. That he valued this more than trying to, to be honest with people.
1: Learning these things about my dad and his dad I can't help but see how both of them were walking around, hiding these aspects of their lives. My dad downplaying his Asian identity, my grandpa trying to keep his kids concealed. These fundamental parts of themselves, they were nervous, could come out. For years, my dad wondered about that, trying to understand, but never really knowing where family actually ranked in my grandpa's life. As my dad graduated high school and left for college, His world opened up more, and his understanding of things started to change. He joined some Asian affinity groups and started taking Chinese language classes, where he'd later meet my mom, a graduate student from Taiwan. The more he accepted his Asian heritage, the more he connected to his father. They even went to China together to visit relatives in Yangzhou, where Silas was born and raised. And when my dad was 22, he made the decision to switch back to using his Chinese surname.
2: That was a big change. You know, I'm really trying to understand who I was as a person and trying to identify um, with a side of me that I had been pushing away for a good many years.
1: What do you think that meant to him?
2: I think that it showed him that despite our disconnectedness over the years, that I didn't give up on my being uh, of Chinese descent.
1: My dad thinks of this time as a kind of turning point in his relationship with his father. And after my dad got married and started his own family, the two of them started to spend a little more time together. One December, when I was four years old, my grandpa came to visit us for the holidays. During his trip, he spent his afternoons helping my dad shovel snow in the driveway and his evenings cooking us his signature T-bone steak. One night after dinner, my dad and grandpa stayed up late talking at our kitchen table. My grandpa opened up about his divorce and started to get emotional.
2: He was sitting directly across from me. He was telling me the story of coming back to that apartment and finding us not there and finding these toys on the floor. Um, He was crying. Oh, he was really crying. It was a, a devastating event in his life. I said to him that I'm so sorry that it happened that way. I felt really
1: bad. It felt, for the first time in my dad's life, like his own father was finally starting to reveal himself, to show what my dad and his brother meant to him. My grandpa never stayed more than two to three nights tops. And at the end of this particular visit, my dad made us all drive down to the local mall and take a holiday photo, the first official family portrait with his dad in it.
2: I can tell he was happy to be in the photo and uh, to have a grandchild and to you know to be part of that.
1: Yeah, you know. I remember I remember that picture. It's Grandpa, you, mom, and myself. I kind of want to grab the picture. It's in the living room, right? Okay, quickly. So this is the picture.
2: Yeah, he does have a little, he does have a smile on his face. Um, And you're, and you're holding, um... Elmo. Elmo, (laughs) that's right, Elmo. Yeah, and uh, I'm smiling.
1: Do you remember how you felt when you took that picture?
2: Yeah. I felt like that... I have a complete family in the sense that we did have photos with dad when we were, you know, younger, but this was different because this is me married. This is me with my, with you, my daughter. Um, this was me building my family. It was me now rooted in my, my Chinese identity. You know, I wanted dad to see that, um, that I had embraced the culture.
1: This was one of the last times my dad ever saw his father. And it was the moment he felt like his father was finally opening up. Just a few months later, my dad would get that call that my grandpa had passed away and we'd head to his apartment in Maryland. As my dad combed through his father's filing cabinets and countless storage boxes, he stumbled upon the toys he had left behind in their house in Canada He found baby pictures, letters they wrote to their dad from when they were kids. It was all there, stored neatly in these cardboard boxes. And he had
2: saved those things. He never disposed of them. And when I found that box and opened it up, I felt, oh, my dad really cherished this. He knew it was mine. And it was something from the past that meant something to him, too.
1: In that moment, my dad felt incredibly close to his father. So, to find that briefcase a few hours later that held my grandpa's will and this entirely new mystery name, my dad found himself questioning their relationship all over again. Who was Joseph? Why was he receiving a fourth of the estate? His name had never come up before. My dad brought the will out to the living room where my grandma was watching the kids, and he showed it to his brother Mark
2: we're going back and forth wondering who is this person and then finally we hear this sobbing your your grandmother starts to cry and she said he's your brother wait a minute you mean like a half brother and she said no 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 he is your flesh and blood full brother just like Mark is to you and then I was like wait so Where is he, and how come he, we never knew about him? How come he he wasn't in our lives?
1: At this point, all eyes were on their mom. She explained that she and Silas had another son before getting married, a baby boy that they'd given up for adoption, just a year before they had my dad.
2: I could see her tears, and she's holding her face and shaking her head, and it took a while to calm her down.
1: What did you say to her to hopefully make her more comfortable?
2: You know, I said, "Mom, we love you so much. You know, we don't think any less of you. We're just here to understand uh, this situation. You know, so anything you can, you know, you can help us to understand is it would it would be great. We're not here to judge you. You know, I think in her generation and in my grandmother's generation." families that had this, uh, secrets on this magnitude would never be disclosed. You'd take it to the grave.
1: But sometimes, people speak from the grave by way of their will. And now, this family secret was out, and the brothers knew they needed to do something about it. After the break, finding Joseph... After my dad and his brother discovered that they had a third brother named Joseph, they never questioned whether they'd try to find him and share the inheritance.
2: We knew that this is something important to dad. He felt it in his heart that our lost brother was still an equal member of the family, despite being given up for adoption.
1: Of all the things our father had said and not said in his lifetime— It felt like in his final words, his last will and testament, that there was this deliberate message.
2: That maybe there was a chance that one of us or all of us combined could, could somehow find Joseph and reunite the family.
1: And now it meant everything to my dad and his brother to honor that. So they immediately went to work trying to track down their brother.
2: Okay, we have a lost brother out there. Um, who was, you know, obviously raised by someone. He probably does not have the name Joseph, so somehow we'll have to find a way to track him down. Your Uncle Mark and I, we talked it over and said, let's get it done.
1: Over the next couple of weeks, my dad's home office slowly began to look like a briefing room out of law and order. He had clippings nailed to the wall, dramatic exes crossing out failed leads.
2: I start with the name of the hospital that that, uh, Joseph was born.
1: My grandma gave him the name of the adoption agency and he looked for the adoption records, tried to track down leads online.
2: Um, Calling social security, I was trying to see if they had records of my mom.
1: Eventually, they even hired a private investigator to help track Joseph down. But the dead ends were piling up and the weeks were going by. My dad hadn't heard from the private investigator since their initial call. He just kept asking himself,
2: How many more areas can I look? And uh, any other clues?
1: Then, one afternoon in August, the phone rang.
2: I was downstairs in my home office doing some work and I received a a call and really wasn't expecting anything. So it was one of those things where you're caught off by complete surprise.
1: The investigator was on the other end of the line. He had exciting news. He told him, I found your brother.
2: I immediately ran upstairs and your grandmother was sitting in the living room. And I was leaping maybe two, three steps at a time going (laughs) up the stairs and um, just screaming. You're not going to believe this, but they found Joseph. And I
3: was totally confused, like, how did that happen? And it was just a, a roller coaster of emotions.
1: And that's Joseph, who actually goes by the name Chris now. He was living in California. For Chris, the news about his long lost family came in a letter that showed up one afternoon in the fall of 2003. He had been sorting through his mail in the kitchen and saw this letter that looked oddly official.
3: And this one in particular uh, letter came, and it had the name, I believe, Matthew Chow. is looking for a long-lost brother or something like that.
1: Matthew Chow, my dad. And you'd think that if you got a letter like this in the mail, you'd be at least somewhat intrigued. Chris was not.
3: I said, just throw it in the trash. It's it's bogus. I don't want to be hurt again. Uh, I felt vulnerable, I think, and maybe didn't want to open myself up to getting hurt.
1: This wasn't the first letter that had shown up claiming it had some miracle lead about his biological family. Chris has always known he was adopted. A white couple in Oregon took him in when he was 11 months old, and he grew up with six siblings, all adopted. So adoption was a pretty regular topic of conversation in their house
3: my mom and dad had an old cedar chest that was like uh, kind of at the foot of their bed, and it was a beautiful cedar chest, and all of the documents were in there, birth certificates and adoption papers and immigration papers, all these things from, from each one of the kids.
1: Chris's siblings would sit around the cedar chest, poring over their documents like detectives trying to crack a case. But Chris had never been that curious about his birth parents. He was happy in the family that raised him, and for him... That was enough. He didn't feel that urge to go searching. Until he was 25 years old. That's the year he had his first daughter, the first person in his life who was a blood relative.
3: I thought, like, wow, I actually have a connection through blood. And so what does that mean to me? I only knew what it seemed like to other people.
1: And it wasn't like some huge aha moment, but after the birth of my cousin he slowly found himself wanting to know more and more about where he came from.
3: I was, like, really eager and wanting to know if mom and dad were still there, if I had brothers or sisters.
1: So he signed up for this online registry called ALMA that helped connect adopted children to their birth parents. He filled out some forms and a questionnaire and waited to see if the website would pair him with anyone in the database. He hoped to meet them in person and ask, why? Why had he been put up for adoption? But there was no match.
3: I was kind of heartbroken, I think, deep down inside. Outwardly, I didn't let it show, but I felt maybe abandoned or something. I kind of thought, okay, I tried my level best, and so I'm going to put it out of my memory now and just go on with my life because I was happy with my life.
1: But after signing up for the database, he started getting all these letters offering to help him learn more about his biological family. He felt like it was all extremely expensive or maybe just straight up a scam. So when that letter showed up, claiming to be from a long-lost brother, he thought, just another scam, not worth getting my hopes up. But his wife had a gut feeling. This was different. Chris remembers one day after he got home from work, she cornered him at the front door and just said,
3: Look, honey, I really think there's something to this, and I said, "Okay, well, if if you want to, if you want to per- pursue that, go ahead." You know, I'm, I'm. She was just nagging. Come on, let's do it. So I said, "Okay, go for it." You know.
1: So his wife opened the letter and called the number inside. Then later that day, she showed up at Chris's office.
3: I could see her like she had this Cheshire Cat grin on her face as she walked through the lobby and into the office area.
1: His wife ran into his office and hugged him.
3: She's like so giddy and uh, sort of jumping up and down, I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And she said, Remember that letter we got from the attorney? Well, it turns out that they've been looking for you. Unfortunately, your father passed away and, and uh, he left mention of you in a will. But your mother is still alive and she's out there. And she goes, And guess what? You have two full brothers, two full blood brothers.
1: Two brothers, a mother who was still alive and a father who had passed away, but included him in his will? It was almost too much to take in. But before he caught his hopes up too high, he wanted to confirm this was true. That night, he and his wife got some photos together to send to my dad's attorney. They chose a few pictures of Chris when he was younger and later as a teenager. In his high school pictures, he sported a baggy hang-ten t-shirt and a shaggy surfer haircut.
3: And then they just, they were like, oh, completely um, sure, 100% sure that this was uh, their brother because they had sent back um, pictures of Matthew and Mark when they were in school about the same age. It, It looks like we're all like twins or triplets, actually. It's just very funny.
1: Later that day, my family got on the phone and spoke with Chris for the first time. My dad was so excited.
2: Your grandmother, me, your mom. Yourself, and we were all huddled over our phone, which was set on speakerphone. Uh, I don't think we were sitting calmly. I think we're all like on our elbows and leaning over the countertop.
3: And right away, we could tell that we all had very similar senses of humor and uh, the way we laugh and the way we uh, compose ourselves.
1: They also discovered that Chris and his family at one point actually moved to Torrance, California, just under an hour away from where my dad and his brother grew up.
3: We could theoretically have been feet apart, yards apart from each other growing up as teenagers. And it's like if I could have a GPS through time and see, hey, what was the closest that we got to one another? We could have been within, you know, a quarter mile of of, of someone or, or maybe even in the same building.
1: After almost a month of these late night phone calls, my Uncle Mark drove down to Southern California where Chris says they finally got to meet in person.
3: I remember first time seeing him. It was like looking in the mirror. We just hugged, and we were just staring at each other and just, like, laughing. And his daughter, Madison, was about four or five, and she came up to me, and she hugged me and said, Daddy, and she looked, and she goes, oops, wrong one.
1: A few months later, Chris flew to Albany to meet my dad and our family and his birth mother, for the whole plane ride over, Chris says his mind was racing. He just kept wondering what to expect. What it would be like to finally see my dad and his birth mom. Would he finally get some answers about his past?
3: My stomach was, was in knots. And um, happy, happy, nervous, you know. And um, in anticipation of finally getting to, to meet mom and your dad and everyone.
1: We all went to the airport to meet him. My grandma was on pins and needles the entire time, holding onto my dad's arm as she waited to meet her long lost son. Coming down the escalator, Chris spotted us a baggage claim. My dad remembers the moment my grandma locked eyes with Chris for the first time.
2: I was watching her, and then when she made eye contact with him, oh my God, it's just like, her eyes were just welling up with tears.
3: I just remember hugging her and just hugging her for a long time. It was just a really, like I said, I felt like a cathartic, it was a big cathartic hug. Like, wow, this is this is amazing.
2: She just kept crying and happy and it were tears of joy, but I, I'm sure she was just, I like, couldn't believe it. It was too surreal for her, you know? I think maybe she was afraid too, maybe being judged or something, but he just kept comforting her And he said, hey, mom, love you.
3: I don't know how to explain it. So it's like, like what you thought growing up was, was reality. And then all of a sudden there's this whole new world that exists out there. So there was a lot of like, oh, sadness. Like, gosh, I had these two cool guys. We could have been like the three musketeers, you know.
1: Chris eventually did get some answers around why my grandparents gave him up for adoption. He learned that my grandpa, Silas, was nervous that he was going to be deported, right when Chris was born.
3: Silas was on a 10-year visa in the United States, so when his 10-year expiration date was around the corner, they were thinking maybe they weren't going to be together.
1: Plus, my grandma's mom really didn't want her daughter to be with a Chinese man.
3: And so their future was uncertain, so when they had me, they gave me up for adoption
1: But Silas was never deported. Eventually, he and my grandma got married, moved to Canada, and had my dad and his brother. But it seems Silas never forgot about his first son. A lot of times, we can think about money, and especially money and wills, as something that gets messy and tricky to navigate. But for my family, this money was something healing, something restorative, a sign that even if it wasn't always clear to his sons, my grandpa deeply cared about them.
3: I felt that this gift, this inheritance was was just that, a, a gift from him that I don't think it was in place of a relationship, but I, I think it was a way for him to reach out to say, you know, to remember me and to show me that that he loved me and thought about me not just posthumously, but through his whole life.
1: Since their initial reunion back in 2003, the brothers have stayed in each other's lives, and they see each other as often as they can. At this point, I don't remember a time when all three didn't feel part of the same family.
3: I, I couldn't ask for, for better brothers. They're just really great guys. you know, they're caring, the loving, non-judgmental,
1: There are these pictures in my house of the three of them, taken from the first time they all met in person. For my dad, whenever he passes by the picture, he remembers all those times when he was younger, playing with his brother Mark and wondering,
2: How much more fun could we have had? (laughs) Like having another brother.
1: And he's also thought about what it would have been like to have an older brother to lean on, someone else to help make sense of the racism and secret shame they felt without their dad in their lives.
2: Um... We just felt that one more brother would have been more like a a group. Um, We could feel a little bit more protected.
1: But for my dad, it feels like he's gained more than another brother. In some sense, he also got this new understanding of his father.
2: The secret that he disclosed in the will about Chris was a symbol of how he really felt. It was his attempt to bring about a unity of the family. In his heart and mind, we were always family to him. So even though he couldn't be there physically with us to be in that reunification, that it was meant as as a gift.
1: Chris has taken that gift from his father, a quarter of the estate, And for now, has started investing it in the next generation of the family. When Chris's part of the inheritance was transferred over, his wife was pregnant with my twin cousins.
3: Whenever I spent some money on something, it was like a bridge to Silas. You know, like, hey, Dad, because of you, your grandkids are going to get a really beautiful, you know, bedroom set for for their baby room. Because of you... You know, we're going to get an extra car for uh, for the family or something like that. I would kind of have this inner dialogue with with him or his spirit and and say thank you. And you know, this is you know a gift from you that um, that he could share in it, like he could share in giving his uh, grandkids.
1: For years, I have known this story, that my family reunited with my uncle Chris through a surprise name my grandpa left in his will. But digging back into this family secret, I keep thinking about just how bittersweet that is, that he probably knew that his final act could reunite a family, brother to brother, mother to son, but that he'd never be a part of it. I guess that's the point of these financial documents though. They can reveal what's most important to us, what we wish could happen even if we're not around, to see it for ourselves.
0: That was our intern, Serena Chow. And that is all for our episode this week. As always, if you want to drop us a note with any thoughts or comments or anything else on your mind— you can email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, gonna keep plugging our newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it yet, you should check it out. We've got some great recommendations on things to read and watch and listen to. This week I'm gonna share one of my all-time favorite recipes. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org/slash comfort. Our team is me, Rima Gherais, Donna Tam, Megan Dietrich, Peter Balanon Rosen, Camila Kerwin, and Phoebe Untermann. This episode was recorded by our intern Serena Chow, and it was edited by Karen Duffin, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Haley Hirschman. Megan Dietry is our senior producer. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. And our theme music is by Wonderly. This is Uncomfortable is funded in part by the Sci-Sims Foundation, which supports advances in education, scientific research, and the arts. All right, I'll catch y'all next week.